Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It's hard to imagine a time in TV when Sir David Attenborough wasn't on our screens. Since the early 1950s, when the first grainy black and white images made their way into people's living rooms, he's been loping through jungles and across savannas in hushed, excited tones, introducing generations of people to the natural world around them. He's had more than a dozen species named after him, from a dinosaur, the Attenboroughsaurus, to a carnivorous plant that's big enough to digest rats and shrews. Over those years, the work of Sir David Attenborough and others has helped raise awareness of the world and our impact on it. But that impact continues to increase. In his lifetime, global population has tripled. The amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has increased by a third. So, at 93, David Attenborough has a stark message. A Life on Our Planet uses his decades of unique footage in the field to show the damage that's been done to the world's remaining wildernesses and underline the urgency of change. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, can the godfather of natural history help save the planet? So, David Attenborough, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello. We're also joined by Colin Butfield, executive producer of the film with the WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, and founder of the UK Climate Coalition. Hello, Colin. Hello. So, David, you're 93. You've entertained us, informed us, educated and motivated for many decades in your television work. At some point, you said that you'd had your share of the platform. Well, what has brought you back to centre stage? What else do I do? Uh, sit in the corner and grumble. I don't think that. Uh, I I like the natural world. I live in London, and uh, I don't see enough of the natural world. I've spent my life going to interesting places and looking at interesting plants and animals. And if I can exploit uh, invitations that come my way to enable me to go and look at interesting things... I go. And the film begins starkly in perhaps the strangest wilderness that you visited, uh, Chernobyl, where in 1986 the nuclear reactor exploded, a terrible accident, and the immediate evacuation of the entire city and the area around it meant that it has stood empty ever since. Why choose that? It was a man-made disaster. Was that part of your thinking? Because a man-made disaster is what faces us and what we are having to deal with. And uh, it was emblematic of the problems that we have imposed upon the world and of the necessity for us to do something about it. But to flesh that out a bit, Chernobyl was a particular kind of nuclear accident. Thankfully, relatively few of those in the world and certainly not on that scale. You're talking about a different kind of risk, I think. Mainly, mainly on the timescale. 
Uh, what was the point about Chernobyl is that it happened bang like that. It was a catastrophe. What we're looking at now, if with any degree of historical imagination, is a long protracted bang that is going on over decades. It started 200 years ago, and we are now hearing the full uh, effect of that explosion. In and climate change. In climate change. And what's more, it's going on, and we don't know where it's ending. Colin, what do you, you make of that, that comparison between Chernobyl, which some people might think, well, that belongs in a different mm. a different world, a different time, different risks, poor risk management in the, in the former Soviet Union and climate change today? I think one of the most poignant things around the Chernobyl example was looking back at some of that old footage and you're seeing people doing much as we do every day, going about their everyday lives as if the disaster's not likely to occur. The illustration that we all wanted to put across in the film was that's much how we live our everyday lives, typically not really thinking too much, too often about the changes that are happening. And at the same time, that same degree of background risk and shock is just waiting to happen. So as an analogy of creating a, a situation where we as humans cannot thrive, it's quite a stark visual example. So David, I'd like to take you back to the beginning, to the 1950s, and you're marginally younger than you are now, and ZooQuest. Brilliantly named show was one of your, your first. And that was a new genre, really, in television, bringing these images into people's homes for the first time. What was the response? Well, it was very exciting. I joined television almost by accident. I knew nothing about it. I applied for a job in sound radio, and which I didn't get. Well, you're hired. <laughs> yes. Initially, of course, it was the excitement of live television. BBC, the only television network in Western Europe at the time. And the excitement of, of being able to see some other part of the country, or indeed the world, uh, which was live and going on, was in itself a thrill. You were amazed to see what was happening, whether it was in the studios in North London or indeed in what was happening on the Centre Court in Wimbledon. And we weren't allowed to use film for a long time. Uh, we just didn't have the money. But when we persuaded, uh, well, I suppose I was involved in persuading the BBC to abandon 35mm, which was the calibre of footage used in feature films, to use little 16mm, which the BBC was very much against. They said it was amateur stuff, bootlace, they called it. But once we agreed to do that, then suddenly... You've got this little box in your hand and you could go anywhere in the world and bring back pictures. That was excitement. And uh, since I was a biologist, or was once, and what I wanted to do was go and look at aardvarks and uh, pangolins and sloths and hummingbirds. What an excitement. What a, what a fantastic thrill. And it didn't matter how badly you did it, and we, we did it pretty badly. But, but, but people have said, ooh, look, that's a hummingbird, you know. Ooh, look, that's a pangolin. So it was simply a godsend. I mean, so, so exciting. When did you first start to notice that there was any sort of big-scale big problem when you were away filming and some animals I think you've said were getting harder to find the wilderness the theme of your latest work was getting smaller it was contracting or under threat what was the, f the first sort of unease that you felt not for a long time uh, the zoo quest was the the last fag end of the Victorian naturalist wandering around the world making a catalogue under the impression that that was science Suddenly to see these things and then to, then to have the effrontery, really, to say, oh, let's bring it back and put it in a cage in London. That was a 19th century attitude. And it wasn't 
until a great conservationist called Sir Peter Scott suddenly drew attention to the fact that we were losing species. And, and there have been other charities which did the same thing. The Arabian Oryx was an example, well-known example, of, of how suddenly people woke up and, in the world, naturalists woke up and said, goodness and gracious me, the only living Arabian Oryxes are, are not in Arabia, but the only ones left are in zoos. And they put them together and, and started breeding them. That was a huge step. But I was lagging behind in that I was still wandering around wanting to look at pictures of, of things in there as they were. The World Wildlife Fund, which, which Peter was instrumental in, in founding, they had much more foresight and saw that something's going to have to be done. And you've made this film with the, the World Wildlife Fund. And one of the, the sort of interesting things about the way the debate has changed was that sense that your films have engendered of a, a wonder that we would sit at home and, as you say, and look at the aardvark or the, the rare species of bird and think, gosh, isn't nature marvellous in all its forms? Well, some environmentalists, notably George Monbiot here in the UK, have criticised you for focusing too long on that element of wonder, which I think he suspects is a rather passive response and being sort of late on to climate change and the major challenges. What's your response? Yes, well, we're, we're condensing time quite a lot in that question. I was sent out by the BBC to make pictures of the natural world, and it wasn't widely seen in the 50s as being a crisis that we were facing by any manner of means. Uh, and it was only far-sighted naturalists uh, like Peter Scott who, who saw the impending dangers. And when did you first feel the impending dangers or witness them? I suppose the first one that I really saw myself personally as being um, a sign of things to come uh, was back in the 60s when the first time I saw um, a bleached coral reef and I realised that the richest environment, the richest ecosystem the world has ever seen was suddenly being wiped out and, and we were doing it. Let's talk about the tone of the film that you've made now and how one judges it. Walking the line between wonder and warning, if you like. The tone feels like a departure from things that you've done before. You've said you don't want to be proselytising or alarmist. So how do you find the right tone that makes people alert, perhaps feel a bit anxious when they're watching something, but at the same time makes them still want to watch, not turn away? Well, um, you can say, which I think is true, that you, people won't care about things that they don't know about and have never seen, and that your first job is to make clear what a wonderful world the natural world is. You can't expect people to, to spend money or time or worry or concern or political action about an issue about which they really know nothing. So one comes before the other. It's quite true that you've got to decide when you stop one and move to the other. But you've got to do both. And is this a film you could have made for the BBC? It's a Netflix production. Did you feel that you had to put aside, if you like, your, your BBC hat and that sense of the BBC as the balanced impartial broadcaster and go and make something that said, right, I'm now in a more campaign mode? Absolutely so. And it's perhaps difficult to convey what a television monopoly means, that if you are the only stage in the business and there's only one stage, you have to say... 
restrict yourselves or be careful about the balance of what you're saying. These days, of course, there are multiple stages, there are multiple voices, and there is no reason, there are so many choices as to where you can watch, programmes you can watch, that you don't have the obligations that you had as a public service broadcaster 50 years ago. Colin, there are some hugely emotive sequences mm. in the film. It's very clearly a campaigning film. Scenes of logging the rainforest that look a bit like a chainsaw massacre. Is there a risk that it ends up looking like something quite alarmist rather than an observation? And what do you feel about that as a campaigner? Where do you draw the line? I mean, we were very conscious not to make it too campaigny. And in particular, I mean, the, the genesis of the idea was David's extraordinary life and career witness statement, as he refers to it in the film we sort of hypothesise there's probably nobody that's seen as much of the natural world as David has over his lifetime. So you're looking through one person's eyes at what has changed and where he's personally been and witnessed. So therefore that takes it deliberately out of the overtly campaigning space and puts it into a, a context and presentation that we hoped could feel personal and resonate like that. It's an interesting phrase, so David, witness statement. It's something perhaps that one can say with more credibility after many, many decades of making films and the, and the commitment that you've had to that. Do you feel that at 93 you are conscious of making some sort of, of statement of responsibility? I'm conscious because other people tell me. Um, the... Do we impose that on you? Well, no, no, it's just, it's just that the world is so full of such wonders and you have so little time and seen so little of it. And even though you spend most of your time looking, it isn't until people say the sort of thing you've just said to me is that you've been very privileged, that you realise how privileged you are. When you're wandering around, you, it, what strikes you and impresses you is actually is your own ignorance and how little you, you know and how much you haven't seen, not how much you have. But I, I know now, I mean, particularly having made this film, guided by Johnny Hughes, who directed it, I, I suddenly begin to say, yes, uh, yeah, of course, I realise now I should have been more aware of the preciousness of what I'm seeing. What would you say to the notion that this kind of work preaches to the choir? It's very engaged in by those who are already concerned about climate change or are keen to educate themselves further. But how would you convince someone who really needs convincing and has immense power but is perhaps more sceptical or more limited in the reaction that they feel is appropriate? I'm thinking of someone like President Trump, for instance. How would you go about convincing him of your case? I cannot imagine that I would have any effect at all on President Trump. President Trump's views have been firm and clear and, and well stated for a long, long time, and he's not going to shift them. Uh, I don't think he's susceptible to rational argument. So you don't think, because obviously you're interested in things like the Paris Accords, the, the big level, multilateral, government to government and, uh, and broader agenda. Are you giving up a little too easily? Um, I'm not giving in because I have not, I'm, not, I'm going on saying what I'm saying and doing what I'm doing to the best of my ability. But the, the brick walls and, and heads come to mind and uh, I see no point in going on and on and on on this particular issue. Working on the basis that the United States of America is a democracy, I would prefer to talk to the voters whose minds, I hope, are still open and available to logical thought. 
Colin, the interesting question is how far films like this address an audience mm. who wouldn't already be involved. Is that something that you think about too? Certainly. And I think what's interesting with this film in particular is I think it conveys, even to people that are quite interested, they probably don't work on this every day like, say, I do. Bringing into context the speed of change that's happened, we can visualise a human lifetime in the way that statistics perhaps are harder to bring to life. So I think, I think that's particularly unique. And also there, there is a very big audience that have loved Sir David's films, have grown up with them. I count myself as one of those. Remember when Blue Planet came out or Life on Earth came out and can then track back and put that into context. So I think there is a unique opportunity with this one that there wouldn't be with others to place change within the context of a human lifetime. I mean, has it worked, Sir David? Have these films really worked to move public opinion how confident are you about that when you talk to people when you go around people must come up to you I, I don't think you're someone who can go around the supermarket here without people running up to you and trying to talk to you do you think that they now think differently about the environment well all I can say is that things changed and changed radically in the 1950s people who appeared on television holding woolly monkeys and things people thought oh they're right entertaining and amusing and and so on uh, but I didn't think they were particularly important and that has changed radically. And it's difficult to know when it started. I would say perhaps about 10 years ago, not much more than that anyway, that natural history programmes, after all, natural history programmes, for example, they were not shown on television in many countries. America's idea of a natural history programme was big game. And you couldn't persuade a network to do a programme about a wood wasp you know, not for, the, not for the life of you. Now, that has changed and changed worldwide. And people are now very well informed about the natural world. And I'm delighted that that should be so. People are more informed about the natural world. But what about their changes in behaviour? Very far from everyone who watches will think of going vegan, stopping flying or divesting from fossil fuels, perhaps, in their pension portfolio. And indeed, I mean, which of those options do you act on most personally? Well, OK. Yes, I haven't eaten red meat for several years. As a biologist, I, I never had any objection to eating uh, red meat. I decided that my digestion, my teeth, suggested I'm an omnivore. And so if there's a biological logic or morality, it was OK for me to eat meat like a lion eats antelope. But I don't feel that now. I just don't want to eat meat anymore. There's always a difficulty for people involved in the, the kind of work that, that you're in and, and Colin too, which is the bit of the catch-22 question, well, why do you fly so much? Yeah. That if you have to fly to witness the things that you need to witness, but we do know the carbon footprint is immense from flying. What do you do about that? Well, all of us just sitting here are breathing carbon dioxide. We're all contributing to in some way or another to the problem. And it is impossible, other than lying down and dying, for us to cease doing so what we have to think about is the carbon dioxide that i am producing by simply talking to you and sitting here is not being misspent and i hope it isn't you fly less yes i suppose i do um but i i don't fly anyway for fun i fly as part of my job i've been very lucky to see more than the world that than I can possibly have imagined I would ever do. So I've had my fair share of that, of going out and looking at things. So if I get on a plane these days, it's because I think it's worthwhile. Not because I think it's fun, but because I think it's worthwhile. Donna, do you fly less than you did? 
A lot less than I did. Um, I think part of it's actually the work travel. You can do video conferences. I think in terms of natural history filmmaking, what's interesting is um, the crews are really quite small. So you are normally talking about one or two people in the middle of nowhere for a very long time living in a tent <laughs> in quite uncomfortable luxury, conditions. Luxury exactly. trade you're in, yeah. <laughs> That's what you tell us. Eh? <laughs> yes. um, we're in a time... Alas, of coronavirus, as, as we're talking to you, and that is already changing some behaviours. An awful lot of travel is being cancelled, conferences around the, the world are being suspended, if not cancelled. Do you think, Sir David, that some of our behaviours might end up changing as a result of having to pull back from what had become some routines of daily life? People are much more economic than they were. They look at their behaviour, in my experience, I mean, how can we can generalise about billions of people? You can't. But by and large, there has been a huge change in public attitude, uh, driven, I may say, I think, by young people. I just wonder whether you thought coronavirus in itself would maybe drive some changes. It's interesting, um, someone was pointing out to me that the pollution levels in China are way down as a result of industrial production having come down a, a lot we're perhaps getting more used to using hangouts, using virtual meetings rather than travelling. Maybe. You've argued that by raising standards of living, you can limit a population while finding ways to kind of offset the impacts, but also a transition away from fossil fuels. This argument about limiting population often gets quite heated. And there's sometimes a sort of sense underneath that you're being accused of being a bit of a miserable Malthusian if you say that you would like to limit population growth. Where have you landed on that, having thought about it for a lot of years? Well, um, I think that the size of the human population is undoubtedly a cause of many of our woes. But wherever women worldwide are given the vote and the medical facilities, education, the birth rate falls. I mean, the birth rate in Western Europe, for example, is more or less static now. Of course, medicine has actually increased the way in which the population has grown. But economists tell me that it's going to work its way out uh, in about another 10 or 15 years. It'll level off for various reasons. Are you less Malthusian than you were? um, No, I suppose I was always... I mean, one of the problems is people like me who who live in their 90s. That's one of the reasons why the world is being overpopulated with homo sapiens. The last couple of years have seen... uh, unignorable new wave of environmentalism and protest movements linked to it uh, all around us, sometimes in the streets, from Extinction Rebellion to school climate strikers, obviously motivated by Greta Thunberg and her example. Which of these movements do you feel most affinity with and any risks to them? Um, I think that there's a risk about disobeying the law In the end, we are all dependent on the law and we have to follow it. Uh, I can see that if you're a young person, you get very impatient that the rest of the the population don't see things as you are. But I think sticking to the law is rather important because in the time we're going to come, when you've actually changed the law, you then have to actually will say, oh, well, now we've got the law changed, you've got to do this. Well, there's a, there's a disjunction. But there was a grey area, part. wasn't there, when XR protesters dug up a, a quad, a big lawn in a Cambridge college. Where did you stand on that one? I think that uh, one has to be charitable and say that they've got no other way of expressing themselves. Well, and, they do have other ways of expressing themselves. Well, they don't have the vote. So you would side with 
Extinction Rebellion and the Cambridge protests? No, I don't believe in breaking the law. And if the law say you shouldn't dig up the gardens of, or the lawns of a Cambridge college, then I would go along with that. And Greta Thunberg, Greta, blessing to the cause? Greta Thunberg has done marvels and wonders. And I think it's absolutely astonishing what she's done. And she's caused the most mighty potentates in the world to take breath and... and suddenly think about things. I have to ask you as a last question whether you are ever thinking of hanging up your boots, and I suspect the answer might be not. I think you told me before we got started, someone came, came around to your house not long ago asking if, if you were still around. They and did, they, you're actually planning to go back out on the road filming again. They did last night at 10 o'clock, tap on the door, and my daughter, who lives in the same house as I do, went to answer the door, and there was a chap from a newspaper, respectable broadsheet, which I won't mention by name, who said, is it true that David Attenborough is dead? And she said, not as far as I know. Uh, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't five minutes ago. <laughs> so David Attenborough, Colin Butfield, thank you both very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And of course, we'd love to know what you think. Can natural history documentaries raise our awareness and ultimately help save the planet? And what species would you save first? Write to us radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism on the environment, the natural world and so much more, do subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. 